What is up, everyone? El Nino Speaks is back in action today, and I have the pleasure of being joined by Keith Alexander, the co-host of The Political Cesspool. How have you been lately, man? I've been doing well. Same old six and seven with me. How about with you? Oh, doing fantastic. Did a whole lot of work this week and feeling very productive, and it's a great way to end the week chatting with you, man. So... Before we start, uh, tell my audience a concise bio of yourself. Well, there's a good one at the uh, website, uh, modestly called Keith Alexander the Great. I'm I'm with the Political Cesspool. The Political Cesspool has a good website. We've been together since 2008. James and I have, and the show has been going on since 2004. So. My bio, though, is just I was born in 1951 in Minnesota. My father was a GI in Patton's Army, and my mother was an English girl, so she was what they call a war bride. He came over here. Jobs are hard to come by. At the time, he was from Memphis originally, but he got some Army buddies to get him into an electrician's apprenticeship program in Minnesota, and that's how I wound up being born up there. My father told me that after one day of uh, stringing uh, wire on telephone poles at in 30-mile-an-hour winds at 30 below zero, he decided it was time for a, a warmer climate. So we all moved back to Memphis, and I grew up essentially in Memphis. I don't think any of us remember too much about what happened before we were three years old, and I don't. I can tell you that. I grew up in a working-class neighborhood. My father was an electrician. He had a 130 IQ, though, when he was in the Army, they put him in officer candidate school, and he got to be a master industrial electrician. We had to move due to uh, the neighborhood that we had lived in before turning uh, black in around 1963. So I went out to the so-called Tony suburbs at that time, and I went to uh, a junior high and high school and public school. And the public schools, by the way, in Memphis at the time were great. I'll give you more about that later if you want to delve into it. But I'm, you know, I was just a typical kid. I was on the football team, on the track team. Then I went to college at what is now called Rhodes College in Memphis. I was on the baseball team. I graduated Phi Beta Kappa and went to law school where I was a law review editor. It uh, wound up at Ole Miss. Then I started practicing law in Memphis, uh, became a partner in a, a, a big insurance defense law firm at one point. I'm now semi-retired. I'm working from my house for the most part. Uh, my wife of over 30 years died suddenly of a cardiac event in 2012. I have three sons, two lawyers and one doctor, all Married and actually married to members of the opposite sex, which seems to be a uh, <laughs> pretty radical concept <laughs> <laughs> in today's world. Right? <laughs> they're all employed. They're all uh, uh, married, and they all live in the same zip code as me. Because I I didn't know I was doing a smart thing at the time, but I had them all go to Rhodes College just like I did. That's the same college that Amy Comey Barrett attended. You know the most recent member of the U.S. Supreme, well, not the most recent, but the second most recent member of the U.S. Supreme Court, the last appointment made by Donald Trump. So because of that, it all wound up here. 
if I had sent them to the University of Iowa, they'd probably be living in Dubuque or something right now. So that's a little bit of advice from one who has been through the wars as a father. I don't know how many children you have uh, if you're married, but if you are, uh, keep that in mind. Keep them close to home if you want them to be close to home after they get out of college. Noted. Yeah, I, I do not have any kids and nor am I uh, married, but that is great advice nevertheless. Now, I'm curious of how you mentioned Memphis. When you were growing up, demographically speaking, what was the overall like ethnic and racial background of the city? Well, originally it was about 20% black and 80% white. Mm. You had negligible numbers of Jews, Hispanics, Asians, and even a few from the subcontinent of India. But, you know, basically it was an 80-20 split in Memphis. When I was growing up and in 1960, I believe nationwide, the breakdown was 10 percent non-white and 90 percent white. Of course, we're down around 57 percent as white people now in America with, I think, Hispanics are about 17 percent and blacks are 13 percent. And the other 10% is split between the, you know, the Muslims, Hindus, the Jews, different racial and ethnic categories. Yep, that sounds about right. Now, uh, I'm curious, how did you start your political journey? What got you into politics? Well, basically, I got involved in, you mean, yeah, I'm, I'm basically considered to be a paleoconservative, an old-fashioned conservative. I always had those instincts. I lived through the civil rights movement, and I saw what actually happened and could compare that with what uh, the nation national news was saying was happening when I was growing up. And then I was working for a law firm where the head partner was a member of the Council of Conservative Citizens. He used to have their quarterly newspaper, The Citizen Informer, around. I read that. And then I saw in it that there was going to be a new radio show called The Political Cesspool coming on. I called in, and James Edwards was the primary host, and he had Bill Rowland as his co-host. And they said, man, we got to get this guy on more and whatnot. And one thing led to another, and I eventually became a co-host with James. Bill, unfortunately, died of colon cancer, I think around 2015. But he was a great mentor, and he had really been involved in uh, the opposition to the civil rights movement, for example, back in the 70s. He was one of the first generation group of people that had to experience busing and left to go to uh, a variety of private schools. And that's how cool. I got involved in uh, the political cesspool. Now, I've run for political office a couple of times, and that's because I saw an opportunity to basically make a big difference in a down ballot race, which was as county assessor. What positions did you run for? Well, I've run for judge before, but I've also, I'm a lawyer. I also ran for um, county assessor and got 40% of the vote, despite being hysterically attacked as being a, uh, a white advocate. Apparently that's not allowed in today's America. Every other Group, racial or ethnic group is not only allowed, but encouraged to have a sense of racial or ethnic solidarity, except for white Gentiles. But I ran 
got 40% in the general election, uh, despite uh, the newspapers and the TV stations coming after me hammer and tong. And the reason I ran for the county assessor is that in Tennessee, we have no income tax. 60% of the money that runs state and local government comes from the real estate property tax. And real estate property tax has two variables. It has rate and it has base. Well, the tax rate is something that the normal politicians uh, have control over, but they do not want their fingerprints on an increase because they'll hear about it the next election if they do it. So the way that they've been getting under the table tax increases for years in Tennessee is through the assessor's office. They have a sunshine law that shines on the legislative proceedings for increasing the rate, but there's no sunshine law that penetrates the walls of the assessor's office, and that's where all the dirty work uh, is done. And I thought that people's home values are being inflated grossly and unconscionably by the assessor in Shelby County. And I saw this as a way to, one, cut off the money for uh, the big spending liberals and also to help out the average homeowner and small business person. So that's the platform I ran on. And it was very popular. And despite uh, being vilified by the politically correct, I still got 40 to 41% of the vote. This case you mentioned actually sounds quite similar to Texas, where uh, especially when I grew up in the North Dallas area, because uh, like Tennessee, there's no income tax here, but a lot of the busybody politicians try to use the property tax and a lot of manipulation there to extract as much revenue from productive people as possible. So many such cases. As for political influences, were there any particular individuals or organizations that influence you to pay attention to politics and eventually run for office that come to mind? Yeah, Pat Buchanan, just like James. James was became politically aware and active by working in Pat Buchanan's presidential campaigns. I didn't run in his campaigns, but uh, he certainly got my attention and he sounded different from other politicians. He sounded like someone that I could really support. So then I got involved with the political cesspool and I decided that, you know, we we people in the paleoconservative right need to have a voice and we need to not be overlooking politics. James ran for the state house of uh, House of Representatives in Tennessee. I ran for judge once just because. You know, I thought it, I had a good opportunity. And then after that, I ran twice for the county assessor. But the powers that be really tried to line up against me. But despite that, I got 40% of the vote. Good stuff. Now, what would you say are the most important issues for you when you decide to pull the lever for a politician? Well, I want somebody who is not afraid to be an advocate for his base. Now, if your base is white, like the Republican Party, you shouldn't have people that are afraid to come out and say, I don't think that this particular policy will be good for my white constituents. On the other hand, we don't need to have just straight down identity politics. Quite frankly, what is good for 
uh, the white part of the population is usually good for the other parts of the population, too. They may not think it is, but it is because having a healthy economy and a healthy business sector is very important to the prosperity of this nation. Indeed. Yes, absolutely. A lot of like these policies ultimately have like positive externalities for the rest of the population and just going about attacking the core population of the U.S., a.k.a. whites, does us no good. That seems to be the, uh, the platform of the Democrats. They no longer care to have white people as part of their coalition. Uh, a lot of this has come been a hard lesson for a lot of union members and other working class whites to learn. Southerners in particular, I remember my father telling me in the 60s that he didn't leave the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party left him. And I think more and more people throughout the country, you know, there's still a few diehards, a few union bosses and whatnot. But under the Obama administration, he let it be. He made it very clear that he really didn't care to have white people as part of his coalition. The Democrats now have the coalition of the quote unquote other I think that a lot of people, some black people and more Hispanic people, just do not care for the current trajectory of the Democratic Party, particularly in trying to make sexual deviancy a civil rights issue. Yes, I can agree. I can attest to that as well. I have like some distant relatives that live in Ohio, for example, that have been like union members and they've voted straight ticket Democrat for a while. But when Donald Trump ran for office first in 2016, they and their union friend groups all like voted for him. And that's part of like that realignment you're seeing in a lot of like Rust Belt where traditional white working class constituencies, especially in the union sector and other working class sectors, they're drifting towards the GOP despite the fact that the GOP leadership is stuck in a time warp where they're trying to establish like a either like zombified Reaganism or Bushism, but there are some very powerful forces now, especially like right-wing nationalist forces that are compelling even like the highest levels of the GOP to start pivoting in this more white working class direction. Well, you know, it all started in the 60s. And yes. I think that the thing that is holding the leadership of the Republican Party back from really embracing their base is this uh, sacrosanct status for the civil rights movement that seems to be the consensus among all so-called quote-unquote decent people. I lived through it, and I can tell you the whole thing was a theatrical production. Uh, It was not spontaneous. There's nothing, as we've learned at Charlottesville and at um, uh, January the 6th, there's no magic to so-called peaceful protest and demonstrations. The only reason it succeeded in the civil rights movement is that the media was totally behind the civil rights workers and against the establishment in the South. In fact, the civil rights movement was the first time in American history in which lawbreakers were portrayed by the news as heroes and law enforcement was portrayed as villains. Yes, the civil rights revolution was a very much revolutionary period where you saw also for like the first time the interests of the other were prioritized over those of the historic founding stock. And I'd I'd also call attention to 
that this same period coincided with the passage of the Hart-Seller Act, which employed similar egalitarian logic where they opened the floodgates to third world mass migration. It's arguably one of the most demographically transformative periods in Western history, and it's unleashed a demographic transformation that has like never been seen before, like the influx of migrants and just the overall prioritization of non-foundational like stock uh, people is pretty mind-blowing when you look back on it. Well, every one of these left-wing movements starting right after the Second World War was basically masterminded, financed, and promoted by Jewish power and influence in America. Uh, just imagine, if you will, for a moment, what would have happened to the civil rights movement if only blacks had been behind it, if you didn't have Jewish media control, Jewish money, Jewish networking capabilities. For example, the NAACP was founded in yes. 1909, but mm. they didn't have a black president of the NAACP until 1975 when Ben Hooks of Memphis, a black preacher, was made the head of it. Up until then, all of the heads of the NAACP were Jewish males. And I don't think it's just a coincidence that ever since that changeover, the NAACP has basically just been a, a paper tiger. They haven't accomplished much of anything. The only time you hear about them is when they're having either a financial scandal or a sexual scandal in the leadership of it. So that Jewish power and influence is the yeast that makes the dough rise, not just in the civil rights movement, but in every left-wing movement we've had, the feminist movement, the um, climate change movement, the drug culture, the uh, sexual revolution, all of these things, uh, you know, the homosexual rights movement, homosexual marriage movement, uh, all of these are left-wing movements that are being financed and promoted by Jewish power and influence. And that's, uh, I don't know why that is, but I, it's like I've told people if tomorrow I woke up and found out the Jewish power and influence was solidly behind conservatism and was using the same effort and energy and money to promote our sides, I'd be their biggest uh, supporters. But that doesn't seem to ever happen. Yeah, indeed. That's, that's one of the more taboo subjects that you cannot discuss in present day discourse and it is like something that will absolutely get you unpersoned on big tech platforms and also make you like lose job like work and all that like if you look at like, kevin mcdonald how he's been like ostracized despite the fact that he makes a pretty strong intellectual case for these issues and if we're supposedly like a free society that's all about open debate people should at least be willing to discuss uncomfortable topics well, Voltaire said that if you want to know who rules over you, ask who you're not allowed to criticize. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Voltairean liberalism is long gone. You know, the idea that I think he was the one who said, I don't agree with what you say, but I will fight to the death for your right to say it. I don't think that the left in today's America shares that outlook with it. Oh, oh yeah, big time. They're all about domination now. And the absolute annihilation of the historic population. Turning back to Tennessee, because I've been intrigued by the state. I've been there a few times and I've really enjoyed it, actually. What's the political climate like there these days? 
Well, the political climate is, for most of the state, is totally Republican and conservative. Now, there are a few pockets like uh, area around Vanderbilt University in Nashville or university towns. Uh, Knoxville has um, the University of Tennessee. They're a little more left-wing than the majority of Tennessee. Memphis is an outlier. Memphis is the only major city in Tennessee that has a black majority population. That's because it's really part of the Delta. I think somebody said one time that the Delta started in Catfish Row in Natchez and extended to the lobby of the Peabody Hotel in Memphis. That's And if you'll notice, there's an Arkansas Delta and a Mississippi Delta. The Arkansas Delta is even bigger than the Mississippi Delta. And most black people in the South have stayed in the basic vicinity in which there was slavery and large plantations of uh, where it was feasible, the, the land was fertile enough that you could have large-scale farming operations and make money on them. It's kind of funny. I remember going with my family to a place called Mountain Home, Arkansas, in the Ozarks, and we had to go through the Arkansas Delta to get there. Well, we went through a lot of towns that seemed to have a lot of wealth at one time. They had you know, granite public buildings and plenty of statues and things like this. They were almost 100% black. 20 miles away, you went to Mountain View, Arkansas, and the public buildings were obviously built on the cheap, but there were hardly any black people there. And I said, boy, isn't that odd? But, you know, that's that's a reality. That's Arkansas. But see, Tennessee, there are only two counties in, in fact, there's only one county in Tennessee where I think blacks are a majority. That's Haywood County. That's where Brownsville, Tennessee is the county seat. And it's near where Ford is building their big electric vehicle plant in Tennessee. Now, Shelby County is about 50-50 black and white. But Memphis is like 65% black and 35% other, including whites. So Memphis is like the blue dot in Tennessee. That's where all the the Democrats in the state legislature, for the most part, come from Memphis. We only have, we have, I think, nine congressmen from Memphis. Uh, I mean, from Tennessee. And the only Democrat is Steve Cohen of Memphis. Every other one is a, a Republican. And they did have a guy named Jim Cooper out of Nashville who was a Democrat, but he has been redistricted out of his position, basically. He hasn't even chosen to run. He saw the handwriting on the wall, but local Republican Party seems uh, they, they could have done the same thing to Steve Cohen, but they don't seem to um, have the intestinal fortitude to do that. Very intriguing. In my case, I have a pretty good deal of experience in politics, as I mentioned when I went on the political cesspool last week, and especially in states ranging from like Texas to Colorado. And I've seen all sorts of shenanigans, especially when it comes to politicians on the Republican side of the aisle. What is the average Republican in Tennessee like? Are they like more like the Chamber of Commerce type or are they becoming more populist? I'd say that they've always been more populist than the Chamber of Commerce type. But Chamber of Commerce people tend to get the backing financially and tend to be the representatives. Uh, 
Uh, we've had a problem in Tennessee like Wyoming had of having outliers from D.C. sent down here to become representatives. We had a senator named Bill Brock back in the 70s uh, who was just like that. He was a uh, person from the Acela corridor. You know, the Acela is the, you know, bullet train that goes from D.C. to Boston. Well, he was the heir to the Brock Candy Company fortune, and he was a Tennessee senator along with Howard Baker for years, but he had very little to do with Tennessee. Just like Al Gore, for example, his father was a senator back in the day in Tennessee, but he, uh, you know, Al Gore claims to be a Tennessee and has a house here, but he spends very little time here. He's an Acela Carter guy. Mm. I meant to say this. That's what the Cheneys were in Wyoming. They had nothing to do with Wyoming, but they wound up representing Wyoming because the Republican Party nationwide found that they could dump these Washington insiders out there and the credulous people back in Wyoming would vote for them. Of course, that's now changed. The Cheneys are gone. There are no bushes around either. But that was a problem in Tennessee back in the day. And it's uh, I think we hopefully we've seen the last of that particular type of political shenanigans by the Republican Party of running uh, people like the Cheneys uh, out of Wyoming, the people of Wyoming, they could care two hoots in hell about them. Indeed. Yeah. I think that with the rise of a lot of like alternative media and also shows like the political cesspool, we there's so much more decentralized information where people can hold these politicians and pundits accountable where they can no longer gatekeep and as a result, it's become easier for insurgent populists and other dissidents to shake up the status quo. Because back then, when you had a much more centralized corporate media, it was just much harder for dissident views to get out. Yeah, I agree. And it's um, I think people are becoming aware now that, like James says, the Republican and the Democratic Party have for too long been uh, two wings from the same uh, bird of prey, you know, one right and one left, but they basically share more than they, uh, they have more in common than they don't have in common. So people are becoming aware of that. Of course, there are still some old war horses in there. Uh, it's funny, you mentioned the Heart Seller Act of 65. You know who the only people that voted against it were in both parties? Southerners. Southern Democrats, yeah, yes, yep. the same people yep. that fought the civil rights movement. They knew what was coming mm-hmm. as a result of this, but they were just shut out of the uh, conversation. They were just supposed to be knuckle-dragging troglodytes, but they weren't. You know, a lot of them were incredibly smart people, and they knew what was in store for the nation, but unfortunately, no one paid them any mind. It's actually funny, if I'm not mistaken, even Sam Francis on a partisan basis actually identified, if not was a registered Democrat, if I'm not mistaken, because there a lot of people tend to forget this, that there are a lot of ancestral Democrats in across the South from like North Carolina to even like East Texas. It wasn't always that the Republican Party was like a conservative party. In fact, Throughout its history, the Republican Party tended to be like a liberal, pro-business party. I would say more pro-corporation. Well, the Republicans were the liberals before the Democrats were. Uh, It's from the legacy of the Civil War. 
Lincoln was a Republican. And so Southerners, when they got to vote after the end of Reconstruction in 1877, again, when white Southerners were allowed to vote, they voted Democrat. And old habits are hard to break. I think the last, before Jimmy Carter, after the Civil Rights Movement, uh, the last Southern Democrat to run for uh, president as a Democrat was John W. Davis, who happened also to be the lawyer that argued against the NAACP in the Brown versus Topeka Board of Education Supreme Court case. But that was 1924. He ran against Calvin Coolidge. But see, we the Southerners hung on as long as they could. Another interesting side note, have you ever heard of Jimmy Burns? Name rings a bell, but I'm not too familiar. He was a Southerner from South Carolina, a very talented man, appointed by Franklin Roosevelt to the U.S. Supreme Court. But uh, before he had served very long, World War II broke out, and Franklin Roosevelt asked him to step down from the Supreme Court and head up the war mobilization effort. Burns told him he would if Roosevelt would make him his running mate in 1944, because most people realized that Roosevelt by that point had one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel. And Roosevelt agreed. And then Burns went to work and even his political enemies marveled at what a wonderful job he did mobilizing America's industry for war production. We not only had enough munitions and material to fight a two front war, you know, in the Pacific and against Germany, but also we provided all of the allies, including the Russians, with a lot of materials that were indispensable for them in being able to fight the war. But Jewish power and influence already had the civil rights movement on the drawing board, and they used their pressure to make uh, Roosevelt not select Jimmy Burns, but instead Harry Truman, who is known to be a racial integrationist. Just think of how different American history would have been if you had had a staunch racial segregationist like Jimmy Burns as the president of the United States from 1945 to 1952. In fact, he might have even been able to go further than that, but that's when everything started, and it was starting according to plan. And uh, Jimmy Burns basically put him in the category of nice guys that finished last. He was, you know, he trusted Franklin Roosevelt and got the shaft. That is a very interesting counterfactual type of like scenario. It's also like um, another interesting alternative history would have been Robert Taft, assuming the Republican nomination. That's right. In the 50s, because the U.S.'s foreign policy would have been fundamentally different, but yeah, it's actually kind of interesting too how a lot of the seeds of the of the civil rights revolution go back to like FDR because in, in that administration there were some very peculiar figures to say the least from Hans Morgenthau to Harry Dexter White, the latter pretty much being like a Soviet asset that was also like well, his real last name was Weiss, by the way, W E I S S. Yep, yep. He's a Lithuanian Jew and. He was actually pretty instrumental in trying to and getting the U.S. to go to war with uh, Japan and provoking Japan to attack the U.S. because they failed in trying to bait the Germans to attack the U.S. So they had to pivot to Asia. 
But yeah, the, the 20th century for the U.S., especially World War II and I'd argue World War One, has been pretty disastrous in terms of subverting the republic and also the the core base of the nation as well, like on all fronts. Oh yeah, it's just uh, we, we've been we've been tools. Uh, the American people have been the last people served by the U.S. government since basically the Woodrow Wilson administration. Mm-hmm. Shifting back to Tennessee. And then this is much more like a local, like state-based thing, because I have argued that politics from like now and the foreseeable future is going to be much more localized. What are the primary issues that are galvanizing grassroots voters in the state? Well, it's pocketbook issues like gas prices and inflation, things like that are the things that are awakening people that otherwise don't get that involved in politics. Of course, of the people that get involved in politics, we have a small group of liberal nut jobs, and we have a lot of people that are more conservative than the uh, standard issue Republicans throughout the nation because of our background. See, uh, you know, basically after World War II, uh, there were two groups of white people that were not allowed to have a sense of racial solidarity or to think well of themselves in any way. They were, first of all, Germans. And then as the civil rights movement got underway, you could add to that white Southerners. So white Southerners basically had the door slammed in their face by the Democrats, who they had supported loyally for 100 years. And what happened then was that they were looking for a home and they came into the um, Republican Party. You had Pat Buchanan and others who devised the so-called Southern strategy of Richard Nixon. But Richard Nixon was really no friend to white people. Uh, he was a typical country club Republican in some ways, although he was not as bad as Nelson Rockefeller. For example, it was under his administration that the EEOC, the enforcement arm of government of the executive uh, that was created by the 1964 Civil Rights Act to enforce it, decided to make affirmative action. Yep, I was going to mention the the, the, uh, official enforcement policy of the EEOC. And see, I was I was actually in the first wave of people that were negatively impacted by affirmative action. Uh, a lot of people suspect they were victims. I know that I was because Can I you had expand a, on that actually because I'm that's pretty fascinating and terrifying. Well, here's what happened. I had a work study job at what is now Rhodes College back at the time it was called Southwestern at Memphis. And in the registrar's office, everybody's transcript was kept. So I had access to everyone's academic record, their grades, what their course of study was what their standardized test scores were. And that information, what, what what happened, what my job was when anyone wanted to apply to graduate school or professional school or to transfer to another college, I would fish out their transcript, make sure everything was in order, and then put the official seal on it and enclose it with their application to graduate school, professional school, or another college. So I had access to all that information. When I was a senior, I noticed that a black senior who was in my class was applying to Vanderbilt Law School. Back in the day in Memphis, 
Vanderbilt Law School was the gold standard for getting a job with a silk stocking law firm in Memphis. If you wanted to be considered partnership material, you went there. If you went to a place like Harvard or Yale, they'd say, what are you doing in Memphis? And if you uh, went to, you know, even the University of Tennessee or University of Mississippi or something, basically it was just like going to Memphis State Law School. It was a matter of getting your ticket punched so you could join the race. And uh, that didn't give you any particular, uh, it didn't matter whether you were a law review editor or not. Well, I looked at the records. I had a 170 out of a potential 180 on the LSAT. The black guy had below a 150. He was in the 140s on his LSAT score, law school aptitude test. And on grade point, I had a 3.64 something grade point average and graduated Phi Beta Kappa. That's out of 4.0. He had below a 2.4. Guess who got into Vanderbilt Law School and who didn't even get put on the waiting list? And that was 1973. So that's wow. this stuff has been going on for a long, long time. My own children have suffered under that situation. I had one that applied to medical school, and he checked a box that said that he was a member of a um, historically, economically uh, underserved community. I said, what was that about? He said, well, I'm a Scots-Irishman. I said, if they got an education, they were either preachers or teachers. So uh, I figured I qualified. He got an unsolicited letter back from Harvard Medical School begging him to uh, apply and said, don't worry about the cost. We've got plenty of scholarships and whatnot. But of course, when they found out that he was not black, they rescinded all that and he got put on the waiting list two years in a row at the local, you know, University of Tennessee Medical School, which is located in Memphis. So see, that's the difference. You have the same grades and the same background. If you're black, you go to Harvard, and if you're white, you can't even get into medical school. That's the America that we live in today. Clown world state. Uh, unfortunately, it's only getting worse. As for racial issues that are specific to Tennessee, how big is the critical race theory, a.k.a. anti-white hate hysteria there? Is that something that's gained traction there, or have Republicans been able to successfully push back against it? Well, they have where they, where whites are in control of the school board. They're not in Memphis, so you get plenty of that here. But basically, the dirty little secret about the Memphis public schools is that they're not run for the benefit of the children that attend them. They're run for the benefit of the adults who work for them who tend to be Black. And, for example, we just had a superintendent that basically thought all the Black women in the, uh, you know, teachers were his harem, and he got into trouble for that. But they, they sent him off with a half million dollar uh, severance package. You know, generous. Yeah, see that. That's, that's what I mean. It's just you know, uh, you can't make this stuff up. This is what's happening, and um, basically, you it's there's just so much cronyism. You know, that that's who gets hired, and it's just uh, what has happened. The black community was really in a lot better shape before. Integration. Integration has been tougher on them than uh, segregation was. Or liberalism has been tougher on them. For example, I grew up when there was segregation in Memphis and black people lived in uh, specific neighborhoods. And it was always a problem 
with black people being arrested by white cops. They didn't like it. Well, they handled that very well. They basically assigned black cops to the black neighborhoods. And back then you had wealthy blacks, middle-class blacks, and poor blacks living in the same neighborhood in the upper crust did not want to live in a um in you know a combat zone a criminal combat zone so they took charge and made sure that the police were supported and they kept crime down also for example in 1950 in the census the black illegitimacy rate for all of america was 22% and the white was one and a half i think in the latest one the Black illegitimacy rate is up above 72%, and the whites are 25%. And see, that is the key figure. If you want to know why you can't get out, why black people can't get out their card out of the ditch, educationally, that's it. You have all these black children that are being raised by their mothers alone. They they drove out the men. They couldn't receive welfare if there was a man living in the house, so the men became expendable. And, you know, you can't just now reset it and do it the way it used to be because we now have had three or four generations of black males that have been raised without a father figure, and that's why we have such high criminal uh, rates for the black population. You know, a lot of these kids in these neighborhoods are being, uh, they're kind of like feral cats. They're they don't have any discipline. A black woman cannot control a teenage white black boy. And, you know, I'm just being plain as Billy Goat's ass on a stump right now, but I'm just telling you exactly that's what has happened. That's why things are in such a bad way now. And they were, they were a lot better before because there's a lot more black owned businesses back before the civil rights movement. And people of in the black community was improving. You had very strict teachers in the black high schools and principals, and they didn't put up with any monkey business. You know, if you were a disruptive kid, you were gone. So by the time you got to high school, you had serious students, and they got a very good education compared to what they're getting today. I can definitely attest to this when I've talked to some old blackheads in East Austin, they are open about this, that during the segregation era, there were black owned businesses, black owned institutions, and just a a robust black civil society infrastructure that kept that whole community in line. But then when integration happened, he, this guy alluded to how just like Jews, Mexicans, and other groups would just move in, buy up all the businesses. And then he noticed like a total breakdown of the black family and just the overall like black civil society there that has led to like the present point. And in fact, in Austin, now the black community in the 50s, I believe, was around 13%. Now it's like straddling like five to six percent. It's decrease like significantly and it's been really like displaced and whatever is left of it is pretty dysfunctional. And one point that you mentioned just to hammer this home of like the uh single like the single moms phenomenon that that's another side effect of like the 1960s especially the sexual revolution. Like that period was a truly culturally transformative epoch of American history that really disrupted the country on ethnic, 
cultural and like economic fronts because it like having like a father in a household is indispensable. It's what keeps sons out of jail and daughters off of stripper poles. And it cannot be overstated how important it is to have an intact family structure. But unfortunately, many people think that's a reactionary feature of like a bigoted society. See, it's the type of thing they don't want discussed like this. But, you know, remember Gloria Stein, we said a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. Yeah. The feminist more. movement. Well, apparently they need them uh, more than a fish needs a bicycle. And these kids, uh, you know, we have probably about a, a killing a day here in Memphis in the black community. And things are totally out of control. And there's a lot of hand wringing going on, but no real solutions because the real solutions would be too harsh for them to stomach. It might be better if these kids went to an orphanage and were being raised by these dysfunctional mothers. You know, I remember when I was a kid, they had orphanages and orphanage. A lot of orphan kids turned out to be very solid, productive citizens. Yep. It's a pretty terrifying situation all around. Now what they have is a foster parent system where people just want to make money by having these kids in their homes and the the quality of parenting they get in those things are awful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I've heard nothing but horror stories from like uh, foster systems and all that. And it's pretty terrifying because I've long argued that if we don't course correct, we, uh, we're in for a cultural collapse of sorts. And probably going to lead to like a civilizational disappearance because it's something that Pat Buchanan talks about that the combination of foreign mass migration and these really dysgenic policies that undermine the family structure and all of that will create a scenario where we're going to be talking about the long lost tribes of the Euro-American peoples, if you will. And we're just going to like disappear from the face of the earth if things don't course correct. Well, again, you know, none of this would have happened without Jewish power and influence. And that's, uh, you know, I hate to keep coming back to that, but that's success of all of these counterintuitive movements. I don't think black people could have managed to change society if they alone were advocates for the, uh, for black rights. I don't think feminists alone could have gotten the changes, uh, you know, that they benefited from or supposedly benefited from uh, by themselves without assistance. And same thing for climate change, things like everything else. Every left-wing movement, if you think about it, has one thing in common. You know what that is? What? Reduction of white birth rates. Mm. Think about, for example, uh, public school integration, Brown versus Board of Education. Well, what happened? White people said, well, I guess if the Supreme Court says it's wrong, it must be wrong. But then they saw where their kids would be going to school and they sent them to private schools and limited the number of children they had to the number they could afford to send to private school. When I was growing up, there are plenty of families with four or five kids. Now, if you have as many as three, you're like the Duggars on uh, reality TV. You know, it's like having 20 children back in the, the old days. And it's a tremendous expense, I can tell you, because I shouldered that expense myself with my own children. And really, I had such a great education in the public schools of Memphis when I attended there. We had what they called, during the time that I was there, freedom of choice. 
which meant that if you wanted your child to go to a school in which they're a racial minority, blacks to a white school, whites to a black school, all you had to do is notify the school board and they would go so far as to hire a taxi cab to pick them up in the morning and take them back in the afternoon. But very few black people wanted that because birds of a feather flock together. They really prefer one another's company. See, that, that's one of the big lies of the civil rights movement. The black people were hungering to integrate with whites. They didn't. They just wanted a bigger piece of the pie, like most people do. That's actually a pretty good point, because there is also a kind of natural proclivity for people to live next to other people that look like them, share the same values and uh, cultural norms. Well, it's like Rousseau said, you know, Jacques Rousseau, the famous philosopher from the French Enlightenment, said sometimes people must be forced to be free. So, yeah, that's actually a that's like the underlying ethos of a lot of like modern day liberalism. It's not a shock why a lot of progressives are influenced by Rousseauian logic. Yeah, I agree. It's, uh, you know, that they they're not liberal. They're not live and let live people. That's what the red states have. People that grew up with this notion that, you know, as an American, you can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me what to think. You can't tell me what to say. And the people in charge of the left now say, if you're not a progressive, you're a Nazi and need to be destroyed. Now, to put a bow in this conversation, where do you see the U.S. going in the next few decades? Do you see a right-wing populist movement pushing back against this, or are we going to have balkanization on deck? Well, something is going to happen. I think I forget who it was that said that when something uh, can't go on forever, it won't. And we are not the United States. We're the disunited States now. People have found the voice. People on the right benefited greatly from the Internet. See, I remember back in the 70s and 80s, it's, you know, somebody said, uh, don't get in an argument with somebody that buys ink by the barrel. Well, that's what the left did. They were in charge of the newspapers, the uh, big TV networks, the big influential weekly magazines, all of these things. And the right had like the Citizens Informer newspaper for the Council of Conservative Citizens and a few other things, you know, uh, Installation uh, magazine by Willis Carto and a few others, but there wasn't very much. But now, you know, if you're a computer savvy kid and we have a lot of them, you can start a podcast or start a website and the word is getting out and there's no longer this left wing monopoly on the news. And that is scaring the bejeebers out of the left. But I don't see how I would admonish anybody on the right. Do not be suckered into resorting to violence or yeah. seceding. Basically, we need to do what Napoleon recommended. He said, when you see your enemy making a mistake, don't interrupt him. The left has done more to hurt their cause than the right could ever do to hurt their cause. All we have to do is give them enough rope and they'll hang themselves. And that's what's going on in America right now. People are turning against the left because they see basically how evil, essentially, these people actually are. Absolutely. They are 100% evil, but they're also pretty foolish. And one of the funniest things about this is that the logic of this affirmative action state that we have has now penetrated many of the arms of the government that the left controls. They're just putting in 
such incompetent and like stupid people that they can barely keep things together. And it's actually a massive own goal. And like you said, we, we want them to continue making those mistakes. We don't want to interrupt them because in effect, this system will implode. And as long as we have built the right power bases at the local level and networks, we're absolutely poised to assume control once the system breaks down. I like what Tucker Carlson said recently about Mark Milling. You can say it about Lloyd Austin, too, in the U.S. military. said, our enemies look at our current woke military and its leaders, and they do not fear them. Said the only entities that fear Mark Milley and Lloyd Austin are pizzas. You know, the, the pizzas fear <laughs> Mark Milley and Lloyd, Lloyd Austin. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, no foreign governments. In fact, it's emboldening foreign governments to take steps that I don't think they would have taken if Trump were president. Yep, indeed. Or a DeSantis or anyone else. You know, somebody that had a, a, a modicum of common sense about them. Mm-hmm. Yep, we are truly governed by like the most incompetent ruling class like in modern history and it's going to get it's going to reach like idiocracy levels pretty soon but i'm pretty optimistic about a lot of local and state level politics i think the basic thing we need to do is just ignore the federal government as much as possible and agree our own states and cities according to our own vision yep agreed well let's close this out keith It was an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Where can my listeners keep up with your latest work? Well, just tune in or log into the political cesspool. Uh, Put that in your Google box. Click it. Now, the first thing you'll get will probably be an SPLC hit piece or something. but (laughs) An uh, endorsement. Yeah, right. Yeah. As James said, when the SPLC put him on the hate group, he said, that's the greatest... uh, honor I could get. I now know I have arrived, but uh, several clicks down there will be our official website. We have new content every day. We have uh, daily reads. We have a new article virtually every day. We're not one of these websites that, you know, their most recent article was back in June or something like that. Uh, we, we, we go, you know, we, we've got a full-bodied website. And uh, we have a radio show every Saturday night from 6 to 9 on uh, Central Standard Time. And we have have them all archived. So you can, if you miss the show, you can play it through the week. And then if you want to hear something back in the past, you can go to the archives and get it there, too. So I would recommend that people listen to us. We wouldn't have hung on as a radio show. In fact, we're one of the few ones that are on terrestrial radio which irritates the left no end. But we've been on and around almost 20 years now. And that's a uh, that's really, you know, I think a testament to the quality of the website and the radio program. Keith Alexander, everyone. And thank you all for tuning in. And with that, El Nino has spoken. <laughs>